Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie making process. Hosted by Tacos, a meal that lets you eat the plate. Now, let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Rose Apothecary. Your one-stop shop for cheese, wine, lotion, bath bombs, and bomb-ass sweaters. Get it at Rose Apothecary. <laughs> Welcome everybody to the Pestle. I am Wes, and I am Todd. And this is the as as we so well described last week, uh, the pinata show where we take a movie and we beat it open and and give you all the candy that we find inside. And effectively, yeah, that's that's kind of what we do. We look to see you know what what goes into the making of a film and from the perspective of filmmakers and actors, writers, musician, and uh, a billion other things. I'm curious. So I have a, a an interview coming up later this week where I'm going to go on someone else's podcast and I'll be sure to link everyone once it's done. That's kind of one of the secret rules of being a good guest host is uh, give a shout out whenever, you know, you, you do someone else's show. And so I'll, I'll certainly, you know, try to be a, a good guest. But one of the points of conversation, it's a creative show where he brings in, you know, a variety of creatives and discusses their process. And one of the conversations that we're going to have is going to be about how you get into a creative flow. And so I'm curious, like when you you sit down to do whatever you do lately, it's been mostly music. Do you have a process that you go through beforehand? Is there anything that you try to do to help you get into a creative state of mind? Yeah, I the first thing I is I got to want to do it. A lot of people can just say, I'm writing today, sit down and do it. But I, and I used to force myself to do that, but I found, I guess in my old age or whatever, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not good at, at doing that anymore. So first off, I have to want to do it. And then I like to start with, at least musically, I like to start with either a sound or an instrument and just say, okay, I want I want to do something with this sound or instrument or loop or sample or whatever it is. Like start with one thing and then do something to it, either throw an effect on it or reverse it or, you know, put a filter on it or something to make it different. Is that the case enough. whether you're starting a new song or working on a current song? Uh, no, if I'm working on a current song, I usually know what I want to do, but I, you know, don't have the time to do it. And so I, I jot down, okay, I want to do this, 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 and this. And so when I come back, I know what I'm going to do. So I was kind of like answering that question from, you know, the yeah, idea sure. of starting no, from Sorry, nothing. I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just curious if... No, you know, no, no, you're fine. It's fine. Uh, that's a good question. It's a good question because it does does change. So yeah, I, I like, you know, lately I've been writing a lot more on piano. It's just been a more inspiring instrument. So I'll sit down and I'll, okay, what note feels good? I'll start with a single note. Like, okay, oh, it's usually D. Uh, for some reason, I just like, I just like that note. So I'll start with whatever note and I'll build a chord out of it. Like, Oh, that sounds nice. And then I'll, you know, I try to build a couple of chords or something like that. And I'm not a pianist, so I don't know what I'm playing. I just play. And then I like, like something and okay, I like that. But I think the trick is to decide if you like something quickly, because depending on your mood, you could be very indecisive, but speed is of the essence. You just have to like, okay, I don't hate that next. I don't hate that next, even if you're not in love with it, because the, the, so, at least the tracks that I've been writing lately, lately, if I had to love every piece of it, there's no way I would get anything done. And I actually like the stuff that I've gotten done. So yeah, I might not love that part, but it gets me to the next part that I do love. And then I can always replace that thing later that I don't absolutely. Yeah. Love. I was going to yeah. ask. So whenever you get to a certain point and you're like, you know what, this works, I'll come back to it later. Is that something that happens where you're just kind of getting to good enough so that you can just move into the next section that allows mm -hmm. you progress? And then at some point, is it often that you come back and revisit that thing and say, this rhythm or this sound, now is my time to come back in and rethink this and, and kind of work through this again? Yep, definitely. It's find the scaffolding, build up the scaffolding. And then once you have like the 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 essence of what it whatever it is that you're that you're actually making. Cause half the time, I don't know what I'm making. You know, I think a lot of people, they don't know what they're making until it's made. And they're like, Oh, Oh, I made a soup. Okay, cool. I didn't know that that's what I was going to make. 
And then I'll go back and I'll remove the scaffolding or I'll change it to some something else. And a lot of times it's either drums that I replace because I'm a terrible, I'm terrible at drum programming, but I'll usually either like replace that or maybe a synth sound or a guitar or, or even the piano part or something, replace it with something else, but just get down the idea and build around whatever that is. And then you can always replace stuff later. So and that, that's what I've been doing and it's been helping a lot. But coming in, to answer your question, coming in with a singular focus. Okay, I'm either going to write about this thing, this one topic, or I'm going to write with this one instrument, or I'm going to, you know, like have one, I'm going to write in this key even, not even knowing what instrument you're going to do, and then just make something. And even if you feel like it's going nowhere, you push yourself through because then you never know, like... Like a couple of the tracks that I have been writing lately, you know, I hit walls and I thought it was terrible and I wanted to stop and just move on to something else. But I, I forced myself to say, no, this is something I can tell it's going to be something, but I just haven't gotten there yet. And usually it's a with me, it's like a, a part. Right. So the sound could be anything. I can't pick the sound. Honestly, I'm a terrible decider. So it's usually a part Oh, that. I love that part. I love that line or that melody. What if the, uh, and then later on I go back, oh, what if that melody was for the was the vocal melody? Oh, okay, that could be cool. Or what if that vocal melody was a actually a guitar line underneath a different vocal melody? Okay, cool. But just finding those pieces that you like, you know, and 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 then just pushing forward and then and then going out and sweeping up all the debris that is is garbage. Turns out to be garbage later. That's so interesting because I I find a lot of I've been doing a lot of writing lately and there's so many similarities and from the standpoint like this script that I've been working on I'm nearly done with and when I started it it was you know you said you sit down with a, a note in your head sometimes and that's yeah. kind of where I started like I had a, an image in my head and I didn't know what the image was supposed to be or the story around it but I had a very vague idea of like I like this idea of these people in the countryside dealing with the magic. And from there, I just kind of sat with it for a few days. And I was on Instagram and your brother-in-law posted a, a picture of like a, the sunrise coming up over like a ashen, smoky campfire, like that as if it had been burning all night. And I saw that and I was like, oh my God, yeah, that's the end of the, that's the last picture. That's the last image. And oh my God, I didn't know, I didn't realize that. And so it wow. just kind of kept evolving out of that. And I was like, why, why would this fire be so important that it ends the story? Oh, it's because of this. And from there, I started getting all these ideas and it kept evolving. I got you and Scott on the phone and we hashed out for, I don't know, an hour or two, a bunch of ideas. And I sat down and nothing like i sat and stared at blank white space for like two months and i kind of kept writing notes down to myself and i have this, these index cards that i hadn't used in years i bought them a while back to to make a outline with and they just sat around because i got really good at using notepads in in my macbook and so i couldn't get anything into my notepads on my macbook and so i was like i think i just need pen and paper. So I pulled out the note cards and just started outlining, outlining, outlining and fighting through the, you know, the, the big blank space of the canvas. And eventually just said, I'm going to write an opening scene and it's going to be what it is. And it took me way too long to write like half a page, but I wrote it. And yeah, and it, from there, you know, slowly the trickle became a, a torrent and yeah, I, just started making these commitments to myself. Yeah, the scene sucks. You'll come back to it. You'll fix it. But does it get you? And so I started with these two, two images like, okay, I know my opening frame and I know my ending frame. And all I need to do is connect those two dots. What's the fastest way that these two dots can, can form a line. And yeah. And so that's been my, that was my commitment. And it, you know, once I finally got going, it took me on a week and a half, two weeks to, you know, write, over 50 pages that kind of told the whole story and now I'm going back and okay now it's time to flesh out here's the beats what is my story really about oh it's really about this and how can I emphasize this and that and yeah so it's been an interesting process but it's very similar like I just started with let me just sit and think about this one picture this one image and what story is that image telling me yeah, okay let's let's play around from there yeah that's amazing man 
I can't wait to read it. Yeah. I can't wait to be done with it. <laughs> How many pages do you have now? Now I'm at 58, almost 59. I wrote close to a page earlier today during writing class with, uh, with your wife. We've been doing this writing group and yeah. And so that was useful. I didn't get as much done in over the course of three hours as I would have liked, but you know, it just kind of keeps spinning around in your head and eventually mm -hmm. an extra idea pops in and it's like, Oh, here's an extra two scenes. And so I wrote two very short, small scenes that add a little bit more depth and story to this very core central idea that, that my movie kind of revolves around. And so it's just very slowly building out the world. Yeah. One. That's cool, man. I mean, yeah, it's not about volume, right? That's right. It's yeah. about showing up every day and, and blocking off that time. Like you said, like, but volume is nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh yeah, I know. There's a there's a musician here in Austin named Bob Schneider, and I think most people know about Bob Schneider, but maybe not. Maybe people that are not in Austin don't. But this is a guy. His producer was the same producer we used for our album, and this is a guy who our producer said Bob would call him and say, "Hey, I want to make a record. Okay, come on in. Bring all your songs, and we'll we'll pick the best." 12 or 10 or whatever. This is a guy who showed up with over 250 songs. <laughs> no shitting. Yeah. He would write a song a day, every day, every day. And I tried that for a while and it's brutal. I, I mean, actually saying that I kind of want to get back to it just to like beat the crap out of myself because it's really, it's really tough because some days you just write really bad things, like really bad. <laughs> and it just makes you feel like a terrible songwriter or a terrible writer in general. But it's like, you got to get all the, the garbage out, you know, and in the garbage, there's these little diamonds that you'll find, you know, like maybe it's an idea that you have now, instead of like a full song, you take like a piece from that song or something. Anyway, anyway, so that's volume, right? <laughs> and, and every one of the songs he would say, every one of the songs are like, oh, that's a banger, man. It's, it's so good. It's so good. So it was really hard to narrow down. He would, he'd be pissed. He'd be like, bring me 250 songs, jerk. <laughs> Come on, man. Um, bring me 50 songs. Let's pick the best 12. But all of them are really good. So that's awesome. Yeah. Volume is good too, but. Yeah. Quality is where you really want. Just, just keep it moving. Yeah. yeah. Because right now my only goal is to get to 75 pages and that, you know, I, I think I know the story well enough to know some of these slug lines are going to, you know, have longer than the two sentences that, you know, follows. And we'll certainly talk about that. But I've been looking for inspiration in all the weirdest places I can possibly look. The story I'm working on is gothic horror. And so, you know, I, of course, went and read Nomadland, you know, the screenplay. <laughs> because when you think gothic horror, you think uh, someone riding around in van doing odd jobs. Um, no, obviously yeah. not. But the one of the encourage, pieces of encouragement I got out of Nomadland was that the page count is only 85 pages. And this is an hour and 40 minute movie. And so, you know, the, the, the page count can lie to you and it, it really depends on you understanding the thing that you're making. And in this case, it helps that the director also wrote the screenplay because she knew what she was doing and what she was going to get out of it. And she knew that, okay, I'm good at 85 or else this thing's going to really start to run long. And so it's just a lot of discipline, a lot of envisioning of what you're trying to get out of a scene, even if it doesn't look like much on paper. And so that was really useful for me to just kind of scrape through the, the, the script, which is really well written, much better prose than mine. I've, I've gotten to a point in my writing. I don't really care as much about the prose when I'm writing my script. I'm just trying to get across as quick and, and painlessly as possible, the action and what you're seeing and what you're hearing and sometimes what you're feeling, but you know, the, the basics, let's, let's get straight into what's happening and, kill all the the flowery you know uh, yeah verbiage so to speak so awesome that's good setup there yeah <laughs> uh so today today we're covering nomadland so if you haven't watched it please pause this episode and go watch it i believe it's uh, streaming on netflix is that correct hulu hulu that's what it is streaming on hulu because we're going to give some spoilers and very specific things that might ruin your enjoyment of the movie we don't want to do that we want to make sure that that uh, you can watch it with very little expectation so that you're more pleased with the outcome there. Concurred. We'll talk about a few things. We'll look at some of the cinematography and filming in widescreen, which to me, this movie, if you were reading it on the page, it wouldn't present itself in widescreen. And we'll talk about why it made sense to shoot this in widescreen. We'll also touch on some of the story and 
you know, kind of poke around the idea of what's the deal with Fern. And we'll also talk about some performance and some of the things that Francis McNorman does in order to create Fern and other such stuff and things and stuff. So a quick synopsis of the film. After losing everything in the Great Recession, a woman embarks on a journey through the American West, living as a van-dwelling modern-day nomad. Directed by Chloe Zhao, screenplay by Chloe Zhao, based on the book by Jessica Bruder, starring Francis McDormand as Fern, Linda May, Swanky, Bob Wells, and David Stratham as Dave. Bo never knew his parents, and we never had kids. If I didn't stay, if I left, it would be like he never existed. I couldn't pack up and move on. He loved Empire. He loved his work so much. He loved being there. Everybody loved him. So I stayed. Same town, same house. It's like my dad used to say, what's remembered lives. I maybe spent too much of my life just remembering Bob. You know what I mean? I can, I can relate. Um, I, I rarely ever talk about my son, but uh, today would be today would be his thirty-third birthday, and five years ago he took his life. And I can still barely say that in a sentence. And and for a long time, every day was uh, <clears throat> the question was, how can I be alive on this earth when he's not? And I didn't have an answer. And those were some hard, hard days. But I realized that I could honor him by uh, helping people and serving people. It gives me a reason to go through the day. <laughs> Some days that's all I've got. And out here, there's a lot of people our age. And inevitably, there's grief and loss. And a lot of them don't get over it either. And that's okay. That's okay. One of the things I love most about this life is that there's no final goodbye. You know, I've met hundreds of people out here, and I don't ever say a final goodbye. I always just say, I'll, I'll see you down the road. And I do. And uh, whether it's a month or a year or sometimes years, I see them again. I can look down the road and I can be certain in my heart that I'll see my son again. You'll see Bo again. And you can remember your lives together then. So, yeah, I don't know. What was the experience like watching this thing? I mean, it's... Wow. I'm really glad you picked that clip because that was definitely the most impactful moment in the film for me i can't imagine anybody having a better one yeah yeah it was amazing it was very real right it was one of the realist films and i think a lot of reason that you know like there were real people that they were filming and there were real moments like a lot of it i know it was scripted i get it but i feel like a lot of the stuff that ended up on screen and if you if you read the the script maybe you could speak to this or not it just felt like it was real felt like conversations like that were real like if that was scripted and that guy delivered that like that he deserves an oscar francis mcdormand just hey i don't i don't know how to put it in into words you know like we sit here and we analyze a good performance from a bad performance but really a performance like this is kind of hard to put into words it's kind of hard to like say why she was so good because a lot of it is, there's no words, you know, she doesn't give delivery, you know, of lines a lot of times. And 
I would say 80% of her performance was without verbal cue. It was just her living and doing things and being. And yeah, it was it was amazing. I would I would love to read the script. I have not, but I would love to because I want to see how how many pages did you say it was? 85. It's quick. 80. Yeah. But how do you get 85 pages out of that? Like that's <laughs> it's, it's kind of surprising. So anyway, <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was incredible. Hard to watch at times, but not not so brooding that, you know, you kind of don't want to go back to it. You know, it was almost celebratory in a lot of ways. And I think that that was the goal to celebrate this style of life and these this this choice to live this way and the people that that do choose to live this way. I found myself at times jealous, not because of of, you know, the way she had to live, but the the way that she got to live, if that makes sense. Like, I, I love the idea of minimalism. I know it doesn't seem that way because I have this room that I built and all this stuff. But I tell my wife every day, we're blessed to have this stuff, but I don't, I'm not tied to it. If it all burned down tomorrow and I got nothing to show for it, I'd be okay. You know, and being able to say that and mean it, not just say it, but mean it is very freeing, you know, because we have things and we acquire things and we buy more things and everything. And and it just ties us down. It's like, oh, it's another thing that I have that I have to manage, right? It's like more weight. I love the idea of just getting rid of everything and just going on the road. And it's, yeah, it's a beautiful story with amazing acting, uh, amazing directing. The cinematography is incredible too. Like the patience that they had for some of these long shots, you know, leaving it on a sunset or just on an open field with nothing. <laughs> it's like, whatever. Or the mountains or, or, or a person in silence. It's just wonderful. Like that was all, I think that was all one shot, right? <laughs> I didn't, I couldn't see it, but Mm-mm. it just felt beautiful and important. I loved it. Yeah. I think I had a similar experience. It was, it was interesting because at, at the outset, you know, there's a interesting arc that happens throughout the movie that they don't tell you. Like I, this movie is such a beautiful yeah. example of show me, don't tell me to a level where it's like, make me feel a certain way and put thoughts into my head without ever saying them out loud. And because at the, at the outset, it really does feel like we're going to sit and explore the idea of these uh, of economic uncertainty, right? And big box America, right? Where Amazon could easily fill in for a Walmart or an Uber or Home Depot um, or what have you. And so you're you're on the, at the beginning just saying, oh, we're looking at these this vulnerable population, and we're going to really explore like the the crevices and cracks that people fall through in America. And I was I was prepared for that, but then it does have this little shift where you start to see that she you know technically has. A lot of other options. She she has a safety net, right? She has people at the beginning who this family that she used to you know tutor her kid, and she's kind of begging for her to set her roots down. Like, hey, you know, we have a place for you. We're worried about you. And you see her sister in the middle of the movie does the same thing. Like, please just stay with us. And and then Dave at the end, <laughs> you know, is begging her as well. He's like, why don't you just you know come here? So we see that she has she has choices, and we kind of. There is this shift that happens where we begin to admire and even envy her freedom. You know, oh, look at this view of, you know, wherever the Badlands while she's drinking her coffee in the morning. Or, yeah, she's, you know, working at this burger joint at night. But then, you know, she goes and explores the Grand Canyon or wherever. And so you begin to just see that she's actually living her life instead of letting her life become this kind of swamp in just one place. And, you know, I can feel myself thinking these thoughts of like, Oh, I wish that was me. You know, I, I I can hear other people saying the same thing, like, Oh my God. Yeah. That there's, there's some rough points, but man, there's some beautiful moments that she gets to, to live and explore. And it's such a stark contrast between those two things. But then another shift kind of happens, you know, after especially after Dave leaves to go be with his son and their new infant, because then we begin to to feel her loneliness and you begin to feel sad for her. It's like, oh, she does have all this freedom, but she she doesn't have anyone. And I, I think at some point, maybe even that scene where you start to hear kind of echo these thoughts of, yeah, I just I never see anybody again. Like it's I'll see you down the road. Sure. But, you know, it just doesn't feel like. I have anybody and maybe it's not said by her or maybe that might be Linda May or someone, but you begin to feel it 
you begin to feel the emptiness. And, and so you, you begin to say, yeah, okay, maybe it is freedom, but maybe it's something else that she's dealing with. Maybe it's a, a rejection of belonging. Maybe it's a self-imposed exile in the face of grief to belong just might be a betrayal to her husband and everything that she had with him. And so, I don't know, maybe finding roots is her rejection of healing and, and moving on, or maybe this is the way she processes healing and moving on. Regardless, like grief is a brutal process in the best of circumstances. And so like seeing her kind of processes and it, you don't really know what it is until midway through the movie that she's lost her husband, right? She meets Bob or, you know, and he's like, yeah, I, I can't imagine what you're dealing with. The loss of your husband and the loss of your town and your job and your livelihood. You know, that's that's a lot to deal with. And so we very slowly begin to realize the things that she's dealing with that goes beyond her economic uncertainty, which is certainly there. And she she certainly touches on that. And that's a conversation throughout the movie. Even Bob himself. Right. And has this comment about the, uh, the he calls it the tyranny of the dollar. And he, he discusses, you know, the the landscape of work in America and this and that. And so that's certainly a conversation piece and, and something you can walk away with. But I, one of the things I love about this movie is it doesn't tell you how to feel. It doesn't tell you what it's trying to say. It kind of just allows you to look at the kaleidoscope and say, what do you feel and, and how do you feel about this? It's not asking for the government to intervene. It's not asking even for you as a person it, trying to intervene with your neighbors, not advocating for any of that. It's just kind of just telling Fern's story and allowing that to breathe and allowing you to kind of feel how you want to feel about it. And so I just have a high degree of respect for that. My impression, I kind of glanced at the book on Amazon. My impression is that the book has a much stronger perspective and maybe the the film isn't a hardcore telling of the the story that the book tells. I don't know. Maybe I'll pick it up at some point. But to me, watching this movie, I felt a lot of, I don't know, space to feel how I want to feel and to just mm -hmm. kind of coexist with with Fern. Yeah. I mean, even the even in that clip when Bob says some some people will never get over their grief and that's okay. To me, that's the most powerful line in the whole I mean yeah. and Honestly, it's the most powerful line in, in a lot of movies that I've ever seen because all of us have grief over some one thing or another. And our goal is always to get over that, right? But what if our goal is to just be okay with living with it? Like that's a totally different way of looking at it. It's like, and where most people, you know, I'm including myself in that, that like my goal is always get over it, right? Like get through it, get through this, get, you know. You know, what if, what if there's a different perspective of like, learn to live with it or learn to use it rather than, or to, or to just, just be with it, to try to understand it rather than trying to kill it all the time. It's as with anything, if something brings you harm, you want to get rid of it, right? Yeah. Like it's just, it's human nature. But so that was a very interesting line when he said that I had an internal, like a physical reaction inside. I was like, whoa, I've never heard someone say it's okay to never get over something. I've never heard that. I've always heard, you know, like advice on how to deal with things or how to get over something or, or more or less in, in along those lines, but never, or it's okay. You feel this way now, you know, kind of like attitude, but never like, it's okay. If you're always sad about something, it's all, it's almost like freeing. It's like, it feels like the story, right? It feels like the, like the, the freeing yeah. feeling of the road. Yeah. You know, like if Fern, maybe she doesn't want to be tied down somewhere because her husband loved Empire so much and she loved being with him there so much that settling down somewhere else would almost be like she says it in that, you know, would almost be like he never existed or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, that was like such an interesting line to me. And I love Swanky. She's this brief character that we meet towards yeah. the beginning and she's dying and she's making her... Like what's important to her? What's my last trip? And she goes to the uh, this memory of kayaking and these birds that kind of escape this canyon and finding the the shells. And then later in the movie, you know, we see she she got there again. She yeah. sends that video. It's like oh, it's so good. It's smart. It's really just smart tell smart storytelling because you have to make such a strong impression with Swanky for her to have an impact later on. It's not like this character we spent you know half an hour with we. 
hung out with her for you know seven eight minutes we got to see her get really annoyed with fern like you don't have a spare tire you could die out here <laughs> like come on <laughs> like minimal <laughs> and she does a great job like she really what? makes herself felt and eventually you know she circles back and so yeah so she did a really great job of just making her presence felt and that way whenever she circles back later we're kind of reminded that someone else is on their their end journey and then at the very end of the film you know we we see the the group around the campfire you know celebrating her with the uh, the rocks and the campfire yeah so it's just very cyclical and these subtle reminders of loss and grief and i don't know life continuing i guess at the same time mm -hmm. like, it's all just there and it's like you said it's very patiently told they they're in no rush and they're certainly not trying to spell anything out for you but at the same time i don't think they're making everything a mystery either like mm -hmm. you don't not know why you're in any place after you've left it like oh we got this out of that and mm -hmm. it just wasn't necessarily obvious at the time yeah i, I think if it's your, if you're looking for a story on its face uh, you know it's you might not like this film <laughs> yeah. right there are plenty of stories you know underneath yeah and there's one on, on its face too but i, I think you just have to go into it with an open mind of this is going to be what it is and whatever I assign that to be, you yeah. know, it's not going to be defined for you yeah. essentially, which is very cool and refreshing. And I love that. It totally is. Yeah. And, and to that end, I'll go through some notes because I think one of the things that helps yes. this movie kind of move along is that we much like, you know, Fern, we never sit in one place for too long. We're moving through scenes, you know, pretty rapidly. And one of the things that helps that, you know, play really nicely is is widescreen. Like we we're sitting in widescreen, which the story is such a, a blue collar story. Like you're watching someone do these, you know, simple tasks and kind of grunt work and someone, you know, older watching someone older do that kind of thing can feel a little humbling to to be an observer on. And so that kind of story to me, if I'm looking at it on the page, I'm thinking, oh yeah, we're going to shoot this in uh 16.9. It's a little bit bigger of a frame and a little bit more every man to it. Like it doesn't feel this sensationalized, you know, cinematic thing. And that speaks to the the nature of the story itself. And they didn't do that. They went widescreen, which makes so much more sense because it widescreen is great for landscapes like if you want to shoot a beautiful horizon you're not going to do it better than and than with the widescreen and this movie is full of landscapes it's also great for like isolating your characters or packing in more characters into a frame which with their absence at you know can add emphasis to a lonely character who's now without anybody in the frame and so this movie is tackling a lot of these you know emotions of community and lack of community she's constantly in and out of community community experiences and the widescreen format really helps emphasize those those emotional moments there's as far as camera work goes there's a heavy mix of handheld and locked off shots and steady cam and so it kind of bounces around depending on our perspective are we watching Fern? Are we a fly on the wall kind of observing her? Or are we experiencing her world and her emotions and her life? And of course, the latter would be is when we go handheld and the former is when we're a little bit more locked off or just kind of dollying around or probably steady cam. And it all plays beautifully and, and speaks to the moment, which, of course, this movie is all about being moment to moment. And so it makes a lot of sense why you would have this range of camera techniques to, to go to as far as a. Uh, story and writing goes we watch fern a lot even as other stuff is happening or being said we watch how she reacts we spend time in her world seeing how she feels the way she's viewing something you know this is her story of course so that makes a lot of sense but fern is interesting for a lot of reasons for one the name fern is really interesting on the face of it it's a simple naming convention all the names in this movie are real names. Even David Strayhorn, who's a really you know well-known actor, he just goes by Dave, right? That's his name. Linda May goes by Linda May. Swanky goes by Swanky and so on and so forth. And so Fern is also a shorthand for Francis, for Francis McDormand. And so it's a play on her name. Fine, that completely works. But there's, I think, 
they could have went in a number of ways. They could have called her Francis. They could have called her Fran, Franny. Like there's a million names that they could have derived out of Francis, but they went with fern, which I think is interesting because a fern as a plant, it, it doesn't have seeds nor flowers. It reproduces by spores, right? Spores kind of float on the wind and take root where they will, which is kind of her lifestyle. So I think they were playing into that idea of she has these fern-like aspects, whereas ferns do have roots and deep roots. You know, this particular fern was uprooted and now she floats like a spore throughout America. And so I think there's a very simple, interesting play through her naming convention that they're doing there. Cool. But there's a there's a, a another question that kind of co- goes hand in hand with that, that we see in the beginning, she's in the uh, the Amazon factory and we're looking at the tattoos on the, the, co- the worker, one of her coworkers arms. And one of the tattoos, she's like, this is my favorite one. It says home, is it just a word or is it something you carry within you? And that's kind of this implied question of the film is, and, and Fern says this in, in the, I don't know, Academy sports and outdoors store. She runs into one of her former students and she's like, my mom says you're homeless. Is that true? She's like, no, I'm, I'm not homeless. I'm houseless. And there's a difference, isn't there? It's like, oh, so we're kind of redefining what it means to be at home. She's at home on the road. Even when she has this really nice roof over her head at Dave's, she, she can't even catch her breath. She has to get outside and back into her home. Her home just happens to be portable. And so it kind of starts mm-hmm. to beg this question of, are we looking at a vulnerable population or, or what are we really looking at? And I just spoiler alert here. I'm, I don't have an answer for this. I, I don't think the film does either. So, but we'll, <laughs> we'll kind of work through some of the ideas here because a lot of the people that we're looking at are older people with hardships. And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, Bob Wells even has this whole thing about the tyranny of the dollar has put the workhorses out to pasture and everyone he's looking at is who he considers the, the workhorses. And of course, Bob's goal, his life mission is to provide lifeboats and try to help support them with a community and with a lifestyle. And so Fern can't get by on her welfare ben- or not welfare benefits, uh, social security benefits. And so she's not ready to file. And so she says she needs work, but says that she likes work. And you can look at that a number of ways. On the one hand, you could say that she really just likes work and she's not ready to retire and to, to call it in yet. Or you can also say by contrast that She's just trying to make the best out of the situation because she's already said her benefits wouldn't get her by anyway. So she might as well like work and like, you know, being active. And so that's a bit of a half dozen in one hand, you know, six in the other. It's perspective. You're also when we're sitting around the campfire hearing everybody's stories, we we, we meet a, a Vietnam vet and he's like, I have PTSD and it's hard for me to sit still. And so he's got his issues. Then we also meet a, a, a woman who wanted to see the country with her family, but they passed away. She waited too long to start that journey with them. And she said they found out, you know, they had cancer and they died within three weeks of each other. And so now she travels the country by herself. And there's this other woman right after that where she, I think her husband passed away and they had this sailboat you know, as they called it, I don't know if they're talking literally about a sailboat or referencing the RV as a sailboat. They're like, it's just sitting there in the driveway. And I didn't want it to still be in the driveway when I died. And and now it's not. It's my sailboat's out here in the desert, you know. And so there's this other idea. Also, it's OK, maybe it's maybe they're vulnerable, but also maybe they're they're making a conscious decision that they're going to live their life free of of, you know, these things that tie us down that keep us from living sometimes and and maybe the amazons and these other you know makeshift jobs maybe they're 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 taking advantage of those jobs too maybe they're both you know helping each other out to provide a lifestyle that they want in exchange for you know uh, seasonal work or what have you you know we'll work on a beet farm for a little while if that means I get to sit in Nevada and, and you know, look over this beautiful, you know, outback or what, whatever. And so that gets back to that question of, is that Fern, you know, she has options and family. And so what's preventing her from, from sitting down and, and staying somewhere? Is it pride? Is it shame? Like, is it embarrassing to want to take someone's help like that after you've had a full life and, and, uh, and you know, a home to call your own and, or is it something else? You know, she's she's 
Fern is living in her past. She says as much in that clip that we played. You know, she has her storage unit that she kind of keeps going back to. And and at the beginning, you know, we realize if you watch this a second time, she's sitting there smelling this jacket and you'll realize that that's her husband's jacket. And she's just kind of living in this memory. And she loves talking about Empire. And she, you know, wears her ring still and doesn't think she could take it off if she tried, she tells those women. And so she's living in the past. And I, in my opinion, like, you know, living in the past is is a bit of a trap. You know, I think I know so many people who live in their past who had a terrible moment in their life and they just can't escape it. I have, you know, a close friend who, you know, suffered a, a traumatic experience as a kid that completely devastated their life and they landed in foster care and it just destroyed it. Like as a, you know, 12 year old dealing with something like that, it you can stay there. And I have other friends that went through other really hard experiences. And that's all they talk about when I see them. And it's like, man, you could stay there. But if you do that, it's stealing your future. You're letting that thing win twice. And mm -hmm. I've been through the ringer a time or two in my life. And I refuse to stay in those points. I'm not going to spend my time thinking about, oh, how I got screwed over this and that. Like, it's just going to steal your joy and it's still the opportunity that's still in front of you. Like, there's so much more life in front of you. And if you just stay there in your past, you'll never see it. And so, yeah, I think that's where Fern is. And that's ultimately, as we've probably said three or four times by now, you know, what's kind of kept her from actually ever giving up on the van life and, and sitting down. It's because she just wants to stay in that memory and keeping her husband alive. Like you said, like, yeah, this is, I'm his rememberer. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's, what's keeping him going. Her performance, God, Francis McDormand, who she deserves the nomination. Personally, I'm, I'm rooting for Vanessa Kirby because she's just outstanding and pieces of a woman. But I promise if Francis McDormand gets this Oscar, I will not be upset one iota because she is absolutely incredible she had so much to this character to this performance through her attitude through the strength and dignity of this character the freedom of judgment like whenever you see someone you know kind of casting a judgment on her you know she shrugs it off and she defends herself she's like nope they don't know what they're talking about and, and it almost doesn't matter what perspective you try to attack her with <laughs> because at the beginning, yeah. you know, she's being accused of being homeless and she's like, nope, I'm fine. And at the end, George at this, you know, barbecue uh, cookout is like, you just threw off your, all your shackles and you hit the road. And he's like, oh, is that what I did? <laughs> like, it doesn't matter which way you try to talk to her. She's not going to yeah. let you get away with it. She's going to define herself and you're not going to do it for her. And a lot of that, it, I mean, some of it's through the dialogue for sure, especially that line, but also through just the way she carries herself. She adds so much whimsy. There's so much that she's doing, even just her her posture. She creates this very specific posture, which if you're not used to watching Frances McDormand on screen, you may not even notice because of how well she, she wears it naturally. Her body movement sometimes can just be this childlike wonder as she's kind of walking through, you know, the the... I don't know what you call that, the the Badlands. And sometimes even the way she turns her head, like you can turn your head and it's almost independent of your body, but she'll use her whole body, you know, to, to look this way and that. And so she's creating a very physical presence with her that fits with her kind of no-nonsense attitude. And she just doesn't walk through a scene saying the words and doing the actions. She's always adding something. She's experiencing the moment the way Fern would. Sometimes she skips through a scene, literally like, or sometimes, you know, she sticks her tongue out at a friend while she's getting a safety lecture. Like she's constantly in the moment. And that's who Fern is. Fern is constantly in the moment. And it takes a lot of freedom to, to live through that. One of my favorite moments is the terror that you see when she holds that baby. <laughs> She's like, okay, oh, yeah. don't stay away yeah. too long. Like, <laughs> this is not yeah. Fern. That is not who Fern is. <laughs> no. And it's fantastic. She's so wonderful. Very little. I mean, I tried, I was reading the script, I guess, more to just read the prose and to see how, how Chloe was envisioning her, her script. And I'll be honest, it was hard to read for me. Not because the words were bad or anything like that, but because it's slug line after slug line. Sometimes there's four or five. And if you don't know what a screenplay looks like or how it works, 
a slug line is just unlike a novel. You don't just say, oh, uh, the character walks outside and now they're outside and then they walk back inside. You have a thing called the slug line that tells you where you're at. If you're inside or outside, which they they label as interior or exterior. And even that is abbreviated to INT period or EXT period. And so it's like interior, vanguard, night. Like that's a slug line. It's just a very simple, quick to the point idea of what like location you're at and the time of day at that location. And so every time there's a new slug line, you're effectively in a new scene. Not always. There's, there's ways that you can, you know, walk from inside to outside and have it continuous. And it's using that word continuous. <laughs> like you literally go, you know, uh, just add that instead of day or night, you might just say continuous. That way you're kind of both, you know, admitting there's a change in scenery while also trying to keep the flow of the scene going. But too many slug lines can kind of create a ebb whenever you want to flow because you're stopping one thing and you're starting a new thing. And so this screenplay was just full of slug lines. And I was just curious just to see what the the flow of the page looked like. And yeah, so I didn't pull away too much, but I, I noticed a couple things that were interesting. At the beginning of the script, there's a, a photo montage of Fern's life and that it doesn't start there in the movie. The movie starts with her opening her her storage unit and they actually sent the photo montage to the end. I don't know if that was an editing decision or maybe there's another version of the script that was a production or shooting script where they made that decision. I don't know. For all I know, there was no script and they shot this thing and then wrote the script in, in hindsight. Like I, I have no idea that that kind of thing certainly can happen. And so the other thing that I, I noticed that was interesting was the ending. Uh, the end of the script has Fern walking toward the distant mountains. And it's almost like she's kind of walking off and either starting a new journey, which is not the way I would interpret it, or this is the end of her journey. She's like, I'm done now. Like, I just kind of revisited my hometown. It's dead. My husband's dead. I think I'll join them. And she wanders off into the mountains, you know, to see her last sunset, so to speak. But in the film, she drives down the road. And from here, it's more ambiguous because maybe she's driving off into the mountains because there's this line in the script or in the end in the film where she says, you know, we lived out in the umpire and there was nothing standing between you and the mountains. It's this idea that, you know, you could at any point go live freely into the into the wilderness. And so the film ends where you could interpret it that she's driving into the mountains. But I think most people interpret it that she's going maybe to go and, and drive back to Dave. That, the, for my first time watching it, that's what I thought. I was like, oh, yeah, I think she's going to go be with Dave now because maybe she kind of got the closure she needed with with Bob Wells. And that was me bringing my my silver lining perspective into mm -hmm. it was, yeah. i don't know what did you think no i yeah i didn't think she was going back to the dave i no. thought she was just continuing mm. on whatever her journey was I, I never got the sense at least uh, yeah i never particularly got the sense that she was going to go back she just was like so uncomfortable man yeah <clears throat> and it looked like he was very comfortable you know and that doesn't seem like a recipe of something that would work, you know? And I think that she realized that. So why not just keep her on the road, you know, yeah. like until, and just like swanky until she, until she goes, you know what I mean? Like she has no reason to not be, I guess that was strong enough. That was presented. That was strong enough if, to, to pull her out of that, that lifestyle. It didn't seem like, yeah. I mean, once you're used to taking a crap in a bucket, you know, <laughs> There's not, you can there's no going lot. back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can handle a lot. Exactly. <laughs> and oh, I mean, how perfect was it? Like her, her reaction to the smell <laughs> after she's like, oh, oh man. She's, you know, she like opens the, the window or whatever. It's like <laughs> ridiculous. So good. So real, man. So real. So was, um, since you read the script, was Bob's monologue in there yeah his his monologue was in the script wow pretty much verbatim verbatim i'm trying to think if anything jumped out at me as being wildly different as far as dialogue goes than in the script and i mean not really and so part of me was wonders everything said in the script 
Yeah. And man, part of me wonders if it was just kind of written in hindsight, like, Hey, here's our bullet points. Here's the scenes that we're going to do. And we'll, we'll explore the scenes as we get there. I, I, I know Joe Swanberg is big on that where he'll, he'll write out ideas and outlines and say, this is the scene. And here's what we're trying to accomplish in the scene. Go. And he just kind of lets the actors work their oh, way through it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fun. You also need the right actors to, to pull that kind of thing off. Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. And one of my favorite films, like crazy, Jake, I think it's Jake Dormus. He did the same thing with uh, Felicity Jones and Anton Yelkin, where same thing. Like, hey, here's the idea of the scene. We're just going to work through it, work through it. Okay, let's shoot it, you know. And so I think he rehearsed it before shooting it, but it was still open, open to interpretation until they they rolled camera, you know. Wow. Yeah. So it's an interesting way to, to make something. You, you, you know, you definitely need to have a good idea of what you're trying to do, as well as actors who feel okay being free in the moment that's intimidating man there's a lot of actors who just want to be told what to say and they will do the work from there for sure and they'll bring their interpretation but the idea of owning the storytelling process for some actors is just a little too intimidating and you know not what they do i like it i i would be super excited to do that kind of stuff (laughs) yeah i'm totally in that camp Man, yeah. I, I hate memorizing lines. I feel like it's cheating, <laughs> you know, but obviously it's not, you know, like yeah. there's a story that needs to be told in a specific way, but yeah. it's how cool would that be for a director to, to just say, okay, here's the, here's the bones go yeah. like, oh my gosh. And how, like, how good of a director do you have to be to be able to know when the take, when that's the take that you need to tell your story, right? That's hard. Because yeah. they're every one of them is completely different. So how do you pick the one? You know, especially if you shoot out of order. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh. The Duplass brothers, I think they make a lot of their films that way. Especially the first one, the puffy chair. They said that, man, we just rolled and rolled and rolled until we thought we had something. And then we we put the scene together in post. <laughs> like we just said, I don't know. We have there's there's a scene in there somewhere. We'll we'll cut it together. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. I love that so much. Wow. I want to make a movie now. Yeah, man. Just go figure it out on the way, huh? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> nice. Sweet. Um, Great notes, man. Yeah. Uh, any other thoughts or ideas? I don't really have much to add. I mean, I think that you said it really perfectly with all of your notes and had the the great clip that we had there. And I, you know, I've already said what I feel like about this movie. I mean, I, it's definitely rewatchable, which is surprising because not much happens in most movies like that. Even if they're really good and they're Oscar worthy, they're hard to rewatch. But I think I could definitely rewatch this again. And it's because of Frances. She just destroys you and makes this role into something that only she could do. I mean, I yeah. couldn't see anybody else in this movie other than her. She just plays it perfectly. So yeah, I I nice. I think I said my piece. I love it. Yeah, I'm excited to see more from Chloe Zhao. Yep. I think she has yep. some other films that I'll go back and definitely be checking out, but I'm excited because with all this awards attention, which is well deserved, it should bring more opportunity for if she's got any other ideas that she's been holding on to or if she is just going to be given opportunities like, oh, you know, here's your pick of the litter. I'm excited to see what she does now because she's a incredibly talented voice and refreshing voice. And yeah. yeah. So well done, Miss Zhao. Uh, and what are you going to recommend this week, man? So I'm going to stick on the, uh, the Francis McDormand train and uh, go with another Oscar film, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Amazing performance by her. She just, destroys it and it's a great great movie in general in a lot of ways funny when it shouldn't be you know not funny when it shouldn't be is it's just really good sam rockwell in that film oh my god like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, i might go watch it right now <laughs> oh yeah that, that's a great i just want i'm like combo. on a francis mcdormand kick i want like burn after reading fargo <laughs> yeah. like let's just keep doing all her movies yeah. and, and we'll be happy well done I'm going to yeah. recommend if you if you have another itch for a road trip movie that is also thoughtful 
and yeah, exciting. I I'm going to recommend uh, the Motorcycle Diaries. It's a, a Spanish mm-hmm. film, and it is fantastic. It takes you on some very interesting trips, and it's funny. It's thoughtful. It's a uh, it's a conversation piece. If you've watched it, there's a lot of things you can talk about after the fact because it's it's not simple at all. Much in the same way that Nomadland is not simple. So go check that out. Stay tuned next week. I think we're going to check out Rocky, the uh, the first Rocky, and see what's going on in there. <laughs> and I'm thinking we might piggyback that with the week after with maybe Creed so we can kind of see oh, yeah. um, the graduation from Rocky to Creed. Yeah, and so that'll be a fun like backer. So yeah, don't forget, subscribe, review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast at and leave us a note if there's something you want us to talk about feel free to do that i want to give a shout out to uh, charlie the the parasite he dropped a review on chef on letterboxd and he came down on the same side i would say as you todd with in regards to chef a lot of his thoughts sounded very similar to you know some of your thoughts and so hmm. Obviously, both of y'all yes. watched that movie wrong, and so that's okay. <laughs> both of us have an incorrect opinion. Yeah. <laughs> it happens to the to the best of us. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. It's so you. yeah. I, I I might drop a review. I keep meaning to whenever I get time to to write some reviews on Letterboxd. That's a fun little growing community over there. And so Charlie invited us over, and so I, I have this set up over there. And it's now how I have all my films rated. Although I have thousands of ratings in there, and they're all slightly wrong because I imported my Netflix ratings, which was a very laborious pro- oh, process. No. But the problem is whenever I was rating my Netflix ratings, it was for their algorithm. So I was trying to game the algorithm to give me more stuff that I liked. <laughs> and so <laughs> I would either inflate my ratings a little or deflate them a little. And so now they're all wrong. And so, Oh, are you going to go through each one? No, part of me. Yes. I mean, you are. I, I want to, but no, I'm mostly focused on the higher ratings. Like, did this really deserve five stars? No. And so okay. uh, a lot of movies are being ripped a, a, a star just out of principle. <laughs> gotcha. And so, gotcha. yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Anyway, if you want to drop a note on this episode, you can do that at pestlepodcast.com slash nomadland. And today's quote of the day is from Jack Kerouac. I was surprised, as always, by how easy the act of leaving was and how good it felt. The world was suddenly rich with possibility. That's beautifully said. Yeah. Beautifully said. Yeah. I think yeah. that Don't sums be tied it up down. pretty well. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think that that does take a certain type of person though. You know, mm. there are a lot of people that like having roots that like, you know, being in one place, having a, having, you know, a, a permanent space. So the idea of leaving that is scary to a lot of people, you know, yeah. someone like Jack Kerouac, you know, he like prided himself on not having that. And that's wonderful for him. Not everybody's like that, but it's, it's beautiful when you can be that way in all honesty. Yeah. You know, when there's not, like I said earlier, when you don't let your possessions or your location dictate what you do with your life, right? You know, what's the point of having a mortgage if you're miserable and you want, you would rather be on a road? Well, you know, there's, And obviously it's not as black and white as that. Maybe it is. Maybe it is in some ways. But I I think that quote really sets it up beautifully in in the fact that I think that people have more possibility in front of them than they realize. It's not always one or the other. Or it's not always as, as difficult as you might think to do something that is completely opposite from what you're doing now. Yeah, and it can be hard for, you know, some people who don't understand that life to grapple with that. I can only imagine, you know, a sister looking at Mm. their sibling and saying, why can't you just be normal? (laughs) Why can't you be like everyone else? And one of the things I like about this quote and some of, you know, Jack Kerouac's books, and I think I've only read Dharma Bums, but at some point I'm sure I'll read on the road. But I love this quote because he was like, the act of leaving was, it felt so good. The world was rich with possibility. And I feel like that's, 
you know, speaking really well to the spirit of someone like a fern that it's not that they dislike you or they dislike what your life. It's that the, the possibility is so much greater whenever I'm going somewhere because now who knows what's next. And that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Very well put. I got nothing to add. That's awesome. Same. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Join us next week. We'll be covering Rocky. So make sure you watch that. If you've been living under a rock for the past 40 years, (laughs) And and as Wes said, subscribe, review, share us uh, um, on iTunes. All those things, they really help. And make a suggestion. We would love to hear what you'd like to he- see us cover. Uh, until next week, I am Todd. I am Wes. Go watch some movies. Mm-hmm.